Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, this is... Uh, Probably my least favorite day of the year. I don't know about you guys. I just was like, I have to say this emotionally because so much negativity. I just get angry on day, like on the uh, daylight savings time. Does anyone else wake up angry? It's like the universe while you were sleeping um, kind of schemed against you and robbed that which is most precious to you, sleep. And so I knew if I was going to be positive the rest of this message, I just got to, I got to like let that vent out for a second. Um, and so I'm so glad you're here this morning. Um, because the universe conspired, it was an hour taken, and then snow started falling at the exact same time. And so um, I'm so glad that you chose to be here, whether you're in this room or you're joining us online. Um, I, I'm really excited about the series that we find ourselves in called Mastermind. And it's one of these series I want to encourage you, even if you're kind of new or you're just jumping in today, to, to go back and, um, if you have time, and listen to last week's message, because this series is going to continue to build on itself, because one of the most powerful forces in our life is our thought life, and it's a very mysterious thing, and today I want to jump into that continued conversation we had last week about our thought life. Um, I recently came across an article, it was one of those kind of startling articles about another athlete being caught using performance-enhancing drugs, I don't know if you saw this, and um, it was, his name was Gear Halagamo, and um, he was caught using two type of drugs. I don't understand how or why, but the one was a fertility drug and the other one was testosterone. But there were studies that seemed to support that in his field and his area of competition, it could actually help him. I don't understand how. Um, but what ended up happening was because he was caught doping, the World Bridge Federation had to suspend him because he was the world's leading bridge player. And after being discovered doping, he was disbarred from competition. I am not making that up. The world's leading bridge player, the card game, was caught doping. And when he was caught doping, he was disqualified from all competitions around the World Bridge Federation games. And I read that article, and I almost thought it was a joke. But believe it or not, the World Bridge Federation is actually underneath the International Olympic Committee. That's who oversees the World Bridge Federation. And so if you're looking to become a world-class athlete, there is now a new opening for you. Some of you, that may just be a dream that got unlocked. I just want to say that to you. But I was reading the article, and I was like, this can't be real. Like, why in the world would you dope and take synthetic drugs that are performance-enhancing drugs so that you could win at bridge? But the reality is, is that I think... That mysterious thing going on underneath his brain and his mind, those mysterious thoughts, this like, there's this insidious type of thought that I think oftentimes is the answer to that question, why in the world did he just do that? You see, last week I talked about thoughts, but not every thought is the same. 
there are some thoughts that are the everyday thoughts that are impacting and influencing our lives. And then there's this special category of thoughts that actually shape our life. And today, I want to deal with that specific type of thought, this kind of mysterious type of thought, this kind of lurks beneath the surface that's often the thoughts that drive our behaviors. It's the type of thoughts that go through your mind as the world's best bridge player and makes you go purchase illegally performance-enhancing drugs so that you have a better edge. And to get to this thought process, this very specific type of thought, I want to take you into a time machine about 3,000 years, 3,500 years ago, to a situation and a circumstance with a man in the very beginning of the nation of Israel's history. He's a man who maybe some of you have heard of before, but chances are you've never really thought much about him. He's not someone who makes it on the short list of conversation around the Bible. But it's this man in this circumstance and situation that I think we, we get to peel back the curtain enough to see this specific type of thought. Jason referenced the app earlier. We created an app for you, and we've already preloaded the passages for today's message in the Encounter Church app in the message notes. If you don't have the app or you haven't downloaded it yet, it'll be on the screen behind me. But the, the book, this moment happens in a book called Judges. Now, the book of Judges is about a specific time period in Israel's history. They've come out of being enslaved under Egypt. They've walked through the kind of the wilderness wanderings that marked their earliest history. And now they've moved into this promised land because the early Jewish promise and faith was built on the promised land. They arrive in the promised land, and what happens is this is still a very early period of time. It's very feudal and tribal. There's 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. Not exactly like the 50 states, but somewhat similar, that there's distinct elements that come together to create this nation state called Israel. But, it, but the challenges is that this is so early in their history, they haven't had their constitutional defining moment. They haven't created their government structures yet. It's still very much tribal. And the way that the government exists loosely at that time is under the leadership of these individuals who rise up, these men and women who bubble up from within these tribes, and they're called judges. And it's this title that the, the book of Judges gets its name from. And the book of Judges kind of chronicles this period of time and the different individuals who step into this leadership role who lead out and who help to bring justice. Because oftentimes what triggered judges were injustices or wars with their surrounding army because this nation's just started. The, if you were to study ancient geography, what you would find is around the nation of Israel at the time were some of the most powerful, innovative um, kind of war societies in human history. That you may think about Attila the Hun, there may be certain kind of Alexander the Great, there's these certain kind of civilizations that come to mind as great like warrior civilizations, and Israel is plopped right in the middle of some of those kind of civilizations. You have the people like the Philistines who are innovative and lead out in creating what becomes known as iron. They, they birth the Iron Age. You've got Groups like the Midianites, who happen to be the specific group in this point. And the Midianites are revolutionary. They're, they have the mindset that the only equivalent would have been the Germans in World War II. They're technologically innovative, 
but they're also creative in how they employ warfare. And if you happen to enjoy ancient history warfare, this would have been a group that you probably at some point would have come across. Now, I imagine there's probably no one in that room except for me who enjoys ancient modern-like warfare. But what's fascinating is that the Midianites had a secret weapon. They had the desert tank. It was, it was like the Blitzkrieg, the German offensive where they would come in out of nowhere with their warships. They would bomb um, kind of unsuspected targets, and that was how the German army was able to move forward so aggressively in World War II, and it's this exact same kind of approach that the Midianites are using. They come in with their desert tanks. We call those camels, right? But camels at the time were incredibly innovative. They were incredibly a technological advancement because camels could go long distances through the desert undetected. They were fast. They required little war little water, and warriors could ride on their backs through the night, and out of nowhere, in this desert kind of landscape, a whole army could appear in a place that an army had never come out from before. It was brilliant. And the Midianites, they used their camels to their advantage. They were dominating during this time period. And the way the Midianites would come in, they were devastating. They would show up, and like the German army in World War II, they would destroy everything. They would burn homes, they would ravage, they would kidnap, they would kill. And what happens during this time period, as we see in Judges chapter 6, is that all of Israel is under a famine because the Midianites, they didn't just want to defeat, they wanted to destroy their enemies. So they would come in and they would burn their homes and then they would go and burn all their fields. You have to remember, we live in a day and age where we don't think about where we're going to eat today. We don't think about where we're going to eat tomorrow. We have grocery stores. We have Amazon. So we live kind of disconnected from how uncertain the ancient world was. If you lost your field or your garden, you were staring at certain death because there was no other option. You didn't run down to Wegmans or click on an Amazon shipment and get it shipped to you next day. It meant that your family had nothing. And the beginning of chapter 6, because I don't want to get into all of this, there's so much history, the, the writer of Judges actually records for us this wordplay that talks about how small Israel was. And it wasn't about the size of the nation. It was about how the nation had begun to waste away in this famine. People were emaciated. They were starving. And it's in this situation and circumstance that we find verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, different than Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abbasite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And so we kind of already see the tension. Here's the central figure that this storyline's about to unfold around. His name is Gideon. And where do we find him? We find him in a place because he's hiding, even if you don't understand all the dynamics culturally of what just I read, you get the sense that he's hiding from the Midianites. And the way that he's hiding it from the Midian, the, the way we know he's hiding specifically is it says he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I imagine at no point this week where you're texting someone and someone asked how your week was going. You're like, oh, it's one of those threshing wheats and wine press kind of weeks, right? Like you probably didn't say that, nor have you ever said that or even had that thought. But you have to realize the, the way that you managed um, 
this world back then is that you had um, wine presses, and wine presses were like, think of them as a large stone rectangle, and the sides would come up pretty high. And what would happen is one, two, three, or four people would get into this stone basin. There was a channel normally cut that would go back and run down with a slope so that you could collect it in a basin. And grapes would be poured in, and you would get in with your bare feet, right? And you've probably seen some form of that in a movie or a book. But this, the idea of a wine press has been around for thousands of years. And this is what they would do. They would just kind of, you know, without the music, they would dance around and squash the grapes and get the juice extracted. And they would collect that and ferment it into wine. Now, grapes worked well in wine presses because you had the high sides, you could press down, you could march around. Now, threshing wheat is completely different. Threshing wheat involves picking wheat out of the field, but then the wheat would have this husk around it. Now, the, the, the kernel of wheat, what you really wanted out of the wheat, was surrounded by this kind of husky material. And so the way that you would thresh wheat, the way that you would separate the husk from the kind of the fruit, the seed that you wanted, was you would go to what's called a threshing floor. Threshing floors would be something about the size of this stage on the hilltop with no trees or anything to stop the wind because you would you would, take the th- you would take the wheat, pour it on the floor, and you would scoop it, and you would throw it up. You scoop it, and you throw it up, and you scoop it, and you throw it up. And that agitation would cause it to go up in the air. The wind would be blowing, because remember, you're on this open hillside. The wind would blow this husk away, and the heavy seed would fall to the ground. And this was called threshing wheat. It was quite ingenious, actually. You, just, you would do this, and you'd spend hours. Now, when you threshed wheat, everyone knew what you were doing. Because you were on the hilltop in front of everyone. Because you required these broad open spaces where the wind could just whip through in order to be effective. And this is why we see that he is hiding inside of a wine press, threshing wheat. Now everything that I've just told you about a wine press and a threshing floor, you understand now loosely how ineffective and inefficient a wine press is for threshing wheat because you're doing this because you don't want to be seen. Wine presses weren't on the open hillside. And so here's a man who's doing this because he doesn't want the Midianites to see. And on top of that, he only has so much food, it fits inside of a wine press. That's not a lot of wheat. And so Gideon is starving, barely surviving, But what this situation tells us even more than all those things is that Gideon is a coward. He's terrified. He's what, growing up, you would taunt each other with the word, you're a chicken. This is who Gideon is. He's a chicken. And yet, what happens is this provoking. Verse 12, it says that when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, there's a little bit of a tension in that. Because the wimp in the wine press just got called warrior. And what does that do? It provokes a conversation and a tension. In verses 13 through 15, Gideon responds, pardon me, my Lord? Like, I'm sorry, what did you just say to me? Like, are you you picking on me? Like, you, 
I know I'm in a wine press, but seriously. Um, he says, pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened to us? Hmm, why? Where are all his wonders that the, our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and he's given us into the hands of the Midianites. And then, verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon, still not on the same page, clearly still provoked, says, Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. It's like, do you not have a clue here, random individual interrupting this very important thing that I'm doing? You tell me that the Lord is with me and I can go save them, and yet I look around in my life and I don't see any evidence of the Lord being with me. And on top of that, if you had a clue who I was, you would know there's nothing mighty about this thing. I am a wimp, and not only am I a wimp, I come from a small group of wimps, and I'm the wimpiest of those wimps. So clearly, you got the wrong address, sir. And this is what's going down. This is a very hospitable culture. And so a stranger coming up to you, because of the nature of it, you would have been very kind. You wouldn't have been as blunt. And so him pushing back is a really strong cultural moment when he says, pardon me. He's like, you are missing it, sir. And it's this moment here that we get a glimpse into what is this very specific type of thought, this very important thing that you and I have to become aware of in our lives. You see, if you were to take verses 13 through 15 and you start to unpack them, what you start to get is a sense of what Gideon really believes. He, he challenges this notion that he's a warrior. He challenges this notion that he can do anything good. He, he says, don't you have a clue who I come from? I'm that group that is the, the people know are the wimps. Well, I'm like the wimpiest clan in that group. And then on top of that, I'm the wimpiest person in my family. I mean, there's just, it's a series of wimpiness in this thing. He's like, I'm, I'm no good. I'm just a wimp. I'm just, I'm just a failure. In fact, I'm the least expendable in my family. That's why I'm in the wine press. Because I've got enough brothers that I guess my parents think, well, if we lose this one, it's not that bad. That's why I'm out here. And when he talks about the world, right, when he, when he describes to this visitor, because he doesn't have a clue who this visitor is, what does he say to the visitor? He says, have you not looked around? Have you not seen what I see? The world is bleak. It's dark. It's done. You just wave your white flag and surrender like I've done. And when the visitor challenges him about his future, we'll go save him. What comes out is hopelessness. He's like, my future is completely hopeless. There's no hope. 
I can't save us. We're doomed. We're done. And what happens is that here is this series of different thoughts. He thinks he's no good. He believes that the world he's currently living in is dark and bleak. And not only is the world dark and bleak, the worst part is is it's always going to stay this way. There's no hope for the future. This is just the way it is. And what emerges in this moment, these thoughts that he engages the visitor with, they're not your everyday sort of thoughts. They're a different type of thought, a more powerful type of thought, a thought that can shape a life forever. In 1875, the largest insect swarm in human history was recorded in the United States. They were comprised of Rocky Mountain locusts. And in 1875, this 1,800-mile by 110-mile swarm of locusts swept through a vast majority of our nation. The the amount of distance that this 1,800-mile-long by 110-wide group of insects would have covered was essentially all of the northeast of our nation. From Maryland, Pennsylvania, all the way to the tip of Maine, every single spot on the ground would have been covered by the estimated 12.5 trillion locusts that swept through, completely devastating most of the Midwest from Minnesota down and over to California, eating everything in sight. They wouldn't just eat all the vegetation, they would eat the fence posts too, Any of the laundry hanging on the line would be consumed. They would swarm on the humans that happened to be outside when the cloud would pass through, and they would attach themselves to your clothing, and they would begin to chew them too. Laura Ingrid Wilde actually wrote about this in her book um, on the banks of Plum Creek, and she commented about that moment when they kind of swarmed on her and the crunching underneath her bare feet. And the sound out of nowhere of millions of jaws crunching and munching and chewing all around. Devastating. Now what was incredible about the 1875 Rocky Mountain locust swarm is that for throughout human history, we've been plagued by locusts. In North America and the Middle East, they were a common... um, kind of threat. Every 7 to 12 years, locusts tend to swarm. But here was what was cool. No one knew and no one had seen a locust when they weren't swarming. They had never been discovered. No one ever came across the secret camp where locusts met and schemed their swarm. No one had ever seen a locust outside of a swarm. They didn't even know what kind of insects they really were. No one even knew until 1921 when a scientist had this incredibly fascinating theory that locusts were nothing more than just grasshoppers. And they laughed at him. Like, there's no way locusts are grasshoppers. They're, They're not even the same color. And grasshoppers, I mean, we've all engaged a grasshopper. The moment a grasshopper senses you're close by, they hop. Grasshoppers 
are some of the shyest, most solitary insects in the insect world. And this man was standing up telling his kind of scientific um, kind of community that he believed the most solitary, shy insect on planet Earth was the plague that we had dealt with for thousands and thousands of years. But what he discovered was that there was this interesting dynamic that would occur. When grasshoppers would come together, in the midst of um, kind of dry seasons, in the midst of vegetation loss, what would happen is that grasshoppers in a region would start to be forced in to these spots. And as they got closer and closer together, something incredible started to happen. By the time that the grasshoppers were so close to each other that they could no longer avoid one another and they would bump up against one another, something chemically would be released inside of them. Their exoskeleton would actually change colors. And out of nowhere, just three grasshoppers could trigger what would become trillions of grasshoppers swarming. And when I remember coming across that fascinating scientific story, and realizing this captures how these thoughts go through a transformation that end up devastating our lives. Here are three independent thoughts that Gideon has. They're all like little grasshoppers. But then when those thoughts start to come together in this moment, that I'm no good, I'm just the wimp, the world I live in is bleak and hopeless, and the future is hopeless too. What happens is those little grasshopper thoughts forced into that life start to transform and metamorphosize into something bigger, something stronger, something called a core belief. Those were not just his thoughts. Those were his beliefs. That's what he believed. And those beliefs that he had, those beliefs that he had, were shaping who he was becoming. Because that's always what happens. The Beliefs that you have are the forces that move you to become who you are. Now, most of us never spend time thinking about it. This is why these thoughts are so tricky. They live beneath the surface, but they go through a transformation, and these thoughts start to move and morph, and all of a sudden, these beliefs start to drift out into our behaviors. This is why Gideon, with these thoughts, with these beliefs, is sitting in a wine press as a coward. His behaviors are reflecting ultimately the beliefs that God pulls out in conversation with him. Because there are a type of thought, while we all have thoughts, there is a type of thought that actually ends up having us. And that those thoughts that have us, those are the beliefs that we have about us. Those beliefs that were formed accidentally or intentionally, many of those beliefs crept into our lives without us ever even realizing they were sneaking in. But those beliefs guide so much of the behaviors that we have in our life. These special category of thoughts creep into every realm of our life. It's why that bridge player, why that bridge player dopes. Because when you are what you do, and winning is the only way to show your value, then you will do anything to protect who you believe you really are. If what you do is who you are, then anything that threatens that is a threat to you. It's why when you, 
if you've ever gone through a career transition as an adult, it's so painful. Because if you have that belief underneath the surface that who you are is what you do, then all of a sudden, who are you now? It's been attacked. Because it's not just the behavior. It's not just your place of employment. It's a belief that got attacked. And oftentimes, we're not even aware these beliefs are here until they're confronted. This is why God steps into Gideon's conversation, and he invokes this conversation with the words, mighty warrior. He confronts the beliefs underneath the surface inside of Gideon's heart and mind. He says, I'm not a mighty warrior. But these beliefs, they come into our lives. Some of these beliefs, they, they come as a result of rules that we create. Some of them are just, they're reactions. You're in sixth grade and you raised your hand and you answered the question and it was wrong and everybody laughed at you. And you said to yourself, I will never be embarrassed like that again. Never. And that day you stopped raising your hand. And you haven't raised your hand since. Because that day you made a rule, I will never. Some of us grew up in households and we watched our moms, we watched our dads, and we made a rule, I will never be that woman. I will never be that man. And some of these rules, they were born out of good places. But what happens is those rules become beliefs and they start to shape our behaviors and we end up starting to become like the very thing we wanted to avoid because that's our driving force is to not become like them. And like any kid who ever learns to ride the bicycle, if you ever fixate on the pole you don't want to hit, you hit it. I will never become her or I will show those people that I'm a somebody. I'll prove my family wrong. We make these rules. Or we have beliefs that we just interpret out of moments. Maybe you were bullied. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. And you draw value and worth out of that moment. And you determine that somehow while everyone else seems to have a higher ticket value, you must be worth a little less than everyone else. And these beliefs start to creep into our lives. Maybe you were the one that cheated. Maybe you were the one who looks at your life and the choices you make and you think, I don't deserve that kind of relationship because of what I've done. I don't deserve that type of child because of who I was. We create these things. They, we, we form these thoughts and then those thoughts start to form us. I wish I could sit down with every single one of you. And if I did, it would be great and it would be painful. Because uprooting some of these things take time. Oftentimes they are powerful because they live underneath the surface. But at some point in all of our lives, we have realizations where we realize there's something driving us to make the choices we make. It's why we end up in the same bad, broken relationships over and over and over again. It's why we fall into the trap of struggling with weight and, and seeing it because you were picked on when you were small, because you were bigger, or you were in the most unfortunate labeling ever. You were husky. And that starts to get down deep and you start to think, oh, when I'm fat, I'm worthless. Or you take the corollary thought, when I'm not fat, I have value. I mean, we do this. And it's so insidious and there's so 
millions of examples. But oftentimes our behaviors are driven because of these beliefs, the beliefs that I will never, ever, I'll always be alone. I'll never find that person. So you sabotage relationship after relationship, or you always find the reason that relationship won't work, or you constantly are trying to prove yourself wrong, jumping into serial bad relationship after serial bad relationship because you believe that if you find someone, then you'll be okay. Then you'll have value and worth. Because we ultimately become what we believe. And while incredibly sad and depressing that principle may be, the story of Gideon doesn't end there. The fact is, God doesn't come down from heaven onto earth to provoke and confront Gideon's beliefs because he wants Gideon to stay there. He comes down to invite Gideon to go somewhere new in his life. Like Sister Hazel said, not the nun, the band, if you want to be someone else, change your mind. This is what God steps down to do in this moment. In fact, if you were to read to the next Chapter, chapter 7, verses 17. Here's Gideon's words. Let's read this. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I go to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and a hundred men were reaching the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed their guard. This is the Midianite camp, keep in mind. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed their jars. And grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hand their trumpets, they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man had his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. This is the same Gideon who just a chapter before was hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. And now, a chapter later, he's got his, like, Braveheart moment with his boys behind him. They don't even have swords. They've got a trumpet and a jar. I'm like, is this band class? What are you doing? You're terrified of this army so much that you... You, you thresh wheat in a wine press, and now you're running into a camp of the most powerful army in your region with musical instruments. It's like, what are you doing? His circumstances were the same. What had changed was his beliefs. God had invited Gideon into imagine that maybe things could be different. And what happens is that the wimp becomes a warrior and the coward becomes a commander. The lie that had been rooted deep down, those three lies, those beliefs that had grabbed hold of Gideon's life, he had swapped them out. He had changed them over. And he was no longer walking and living out those beliefs. He was becoming someone new. He was becoming a warrior and a commander. And the only thing that changed was his beliefs. That's why at the beginning of this message, I said I want to talk about a very specific type of thought. A thought that has the power 
to change your life. A thought that's probably shaping your life. A thought that we call our beliefs. And for Gideon, the way that he confronted his beliefs was he finished the sentence. God steps up and says, you know what? It's true, Gideon. You're not enough. You are the wimpest, wimpiest of the wimpiest. But that's not the rest of the sentence. That's not all there is to the sentence. He says, but Gideon, while you may not be enough, the I am is. He tells Gideon multiple times, go in because I'm going to be with you. And because when God is with you, musical instruments become kingdom conquering technology. Armies fall. Gideon, when I walk with you. For me in my own life, I've seen this play out. When I was born, there were beliefs that were almost present from the day I was first born. This storyline, these thoughts that once they grabbed hold of me, they grabbed hold of me. See, when I was born, some of you are aware of this, um, uh, the guy who I thought was my father wasn't really my father. So as a three-year-old, one of my earlier memories was losing my dad or what I thought was my dad. And then when I'm 12 or 13, I realized that there's actually a real person, a real father who's still alive. Because if you've ever lost a parent as a small kid, it doesn't matter how amazing your one parent is, you still have a void because of the other one. And so all of a sudden, as a small kind of prepubescent teenage boy, I find out that like the thing I'd always wanted in life is real. I have a father. And then a few sentences later, to have that resurrection of this figure in my life completely devastate me by finding out that when I was born, he would rather had a career than a son. And the resurrection and the expectation and the hope that I experienced was quickly matched by the pain of rejection. And that just fueled all the other stories that I was hearing as a little husky kid being bullied. Because I didn't have my first friend until I was about a junior in high school. A real friend. I was bullied, picked on because I was overweight, because I was a nerd kid. And so all of these stories, all these beliefs about me, all these things spoken over me, these thoughts all around me became the thoughts that had me. That I was worthless. That I wasn't wanted. That I, I wasn't even enough to keep a man around when he first stepped into my life. And those things went down deep inside of my soul. And, and most of the time I didn't even realize that operating system was there. Now it manifests itself every once in a while when I would overeat because of the pain. Or through college when I was drinking and doing drugs to kind of numb it. Most of the time it stayed hidden. Even this past year, we were walking through a, just a series of personal struggles in our lives. I was trying to finish my doctorate, and um, for those who've heard that story, I, I was always labeled growing up as someone who couldn't really write very well, and here I am trying to write. And constantly would sit down at Starbucks and feel these waves of anxiety rush over me because I'm not enough. I'm not enough to write. And the pain of my wife and I and for, um, for years struggling with infertility 
to only realize after we began last year to start to explore it medically and the testing to realize that I'm the reason we couldn't have a child. And to have to look at this, the most incredible woman in the world, this woman that I love and respect more than anyone, who I, is like my hero in everyday life. The thing that I knew she wanted the most, I wasn't enough to give it to her. And again, all of these narratives and these beliefs that would lurk beneath the surface would just hang out there. And we all have that. We all have these things that hide beneath the surface that that make us feel guilt and shame when we react to our kids the way we do. And we feel that tinge of that belief that I will never become that woman. And then in that moment, you sounded just like her. Or those moments when you look at yourself in the mirror and what you see, you've labeled as a little less worthy because of your weight struggles. Or because you're in a career and no one respects you, or maybe you can't even find a job, and, and the belief down deep inside says, well, you are what you do, so what does that say about you? And it seeps and creeps down deep, and it shapes your life. And my year last year was just constantly flooded with those powerful moments. I would find myself like Gideon in a wine press, threshing wheat because of the beliefs down deep. And for me and for you and for Gideon, I think the hope is what God does for him as he steps in and he says, there is more, Gideon. There is more. There is a storyline. There is a hope. And that Gideon, when I show up and I speak words and I call wimps warriors, it's because there is a truth that is stronger than the lies that you've chosen to believe. That there are words that bring life and hope that are even greater than the words that we've believed about ourselves. So even this past November, I just remember having a moment where just wrestling with the weight of all these things that I was processing through. And just hearing God in heaven through the Bible. Speak the words to me that he spoke to Gideon. Of son, you're not enough. You can't give her the baby that you deserve, that you know she deserves. You can't. And it's okay. Because you're not finishing your sentence, son. You see, that day that you were born, sitting in that room, to that teenage woman who had you with a man who didn't care about you. I was there. I loved you even when others left you. And over the course of your entire life, you've never been alone. Son, what happened was you, like Gideon, fall and fell into this trap where you allowed the lies and the feelings that you had to become the beliefs that were shaping who you were becoming. And to some of you, let me speak these words. There is something stronger than the addiction that you have. There is a love greater than the love that you feel like you can't get. There is a force stronger 
than those feelings of inadequacy or worthlessness or pain or grief. There is something greater. There is an invitation to you and to me, just like there was to Gideon, to invite you into a story where your beliefs can be transformed, where the wimp can become the warrior, where the infertile can become the fertile, where the barren can become beautiful, where the broken can become those who soar. And for the crippled who can walk and for the blind who can see, the invitation is for us all. So I don't know you and your story. I don't know what beliefs you have about you. But is it true? And let's say, for example, it is. Whatever that happens to be. Well, you should know where I come from. You should know every time I say I'm going to stop doing this, I go back to it. Or you should know how many men have hurt me. Or how many times I've gone on a date. Or how many times I've tried to live out my faith. Maybe that's true. But what's incredible about the Christian faith is that God stepped onto a cross and died. And what was so definitively true was that he was dead in the grave. And then three days later, later, he kicks open the rock and he walks out demonstrating that even what is true about you doesn't have to stay true about you. Even what has marked your life doesn't have to keep marking your life. That he speaks words that are stronger. He speaks words that are greater. He speaks words that bring freedom. That chains fall. That life comes. That hope is born. Even in hopeless, broken places. And that wimps can become warriors. And so wherever you are, whatever it is that you believe about you, there is something truer over you. And the way that we want to close out today is we want to sing that. For some of you, our band's going to sing it to you because you're not sure if you believe it yet. For some of you, you need to sing it for yourself as your first step in starting to believe it. Because our thought lives... Our lives move in the trajectory of our thoughts. And what you believe is eventually what you will become. And if you want to change your life, you've got to change your mind. And what Jesus holds out for all of us is an opportunity to do that. And I'd love, our team would love to step into that with you. If you've got questions, if there are ways we can pray for you, whether it's swinging by starting point or in the app or on the connection card, let us know. I'd love to sit down, coffee with you, and to help you begin to unpack what's even truer about you than what you believe right now. So our band's going to come. They're going to lead us into this song, this declaration about what God has said. And in our last five minutes together, let's start to move from being wimps to warriors. Let's start to shift from being broken to beautiful. Let's start moving from being cowards to the commanders and the masterminds of our lives. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.